This evening, we read from Isaiah chapter 26, found on page 1096 in the Pew Bibles. Page 1096, we will be reading the first 12 verses of Isaiah 26, with our text being verse 3. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast, because he trusts in you. Page 1096, the word of our Lord in Isaiah chapter 26. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord, is the rock eternal. He humbles those who dwell on high. He lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it down to the dust. Feet trample it down, the feet of the oppressed, the footsteps of the poor. The path of the righteous is level. O upright one, you make the way of the righteous smooth. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. My soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. When your judgments come upon the earth, the people of the world learn righteousness. Though grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. Even in a land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and regard not the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted high, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be put to shame. Let the fire reserved for your enemies consume them. Lord, you establish peace for us. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. And there ends the reading of God's word this evening. And may the Lord bless the reading and the study of his word to your life and to mine as we look at it together this evening. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, Charles Spurgeon, that great preacher from a former era, described a martyr who was tied to the stake, ready to be burned to death. His executioner was anguished and dreaded starting the fire, but the order had come from the king calling for the execution of this Christian. What else could the executioner do? The Christian who was being martyred seeing anguish in the face of the executioner, said, come, let, lay your hand on my heart and see if it does not beat quietly. The executioner did so and found that the man was calm. Now, said the man who was being martyred, put your hand on your own heart and see if you are not more troubled than I am. Then go your way, and instead of pitying me, pity yourself. 
Spurgeon didn't give the date when the Christian man was martyred. But we know that throughout history, believers have been martyred because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as scripture and just as Jesus himself had foretold. Isaiah certainly experienced that. He was a prophet who was commissioned by God to call Judah and Jerusalem to repentance. He began his ministry about 740 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. At that time, the people of Judah and Jerusalem were chasing after the things of the world. They seldom acknowledged God and they made light of his word. Judah was a wicked nation and they were surrounded by many more wicked nations. Yet amid all the wickedness, amid all the violence, amid all the persecution that Isaiah faced, he wrote about perfect peace. Verse 3 describes a peace that only a Christian can have. Verse 3 is an accurate description of the peace that the martyr had when the executioner's heart beat way faster than his. Isaiah writes, You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. That verse should be of great encouragement to you and to me and to Christians around the world. We live in a world that is saturated with sin. Evil seems to dominate, and believers around the world are persecuted severely. And yet, regardless of the evil violence of this world, we too are given perfect peace through saving faith in the Messiah, in Christ. In this passage, we see that the most important peace that anyone can possibly have is peace with God. How was it possible that this Christian who was being martyred could be so calm as his executioner gathered the wood and prepared to set fire to burn the Christian to death? The reason the Christian remained calm is that he had peace with God. There was no doubt in his mind as to where he was going because the enmity between himself and God had been bridged by that redeeming work of Jesus Christ and by the shed blood of his Savior and Lord. He knew that he belonged to Christ in life and also in death. He had experienced the truth of Philippians 1 verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Consequently, his heart was calm even as the wood was gathered for his execution, for his martyrdom. Because his faith was focused on Christ alone for salvation, he knew that nothing, no one, and not even a martyr's death could separate him from his Savior. He was convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus. 
He also knew, as does every repentant believer, that all of us are born as children of wrath and are by nature at enmity with God. In the words of Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 3, as for you, you were dead in your sins and your transgressions in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, not just some of us, all of us, Scripture says, also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But Christ who is the Prince of Peace, has reconciled all who have saving faith in him alone to God the Father. There is no greater peace than that peace that we have through saving faith in Jesus Christ. It is described this way in Romans 5, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And you know how that grand eighth chapter of Romans begins as it says, therefore, after speaking about the redeeming grace of our God, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, as he became a propitiation, covering our sins with his precious blood. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the passage from Ephesians 2, which graphically describes our sinful condition in the opening verses, goes on to say this remarkable truth but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in order that in the coming ages he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And that peace that comes through saving faith in Christ alone surpasses all understanding. The executioner certainly could not understand how the Christian could face martyrdom with a calm heart. The peace that we have from God is truly beyond comprehension. Writing to the Philippians, the Apostle Paul, in jail, wrote to that small, struggling, troubled church at Philippi, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, Present your request to God and the peace of God which surpasses, which transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Eric Parker was a missionary in Portugal during World War II. 
because he and his family were in a dangerous place, he was advised to send his wife and his children back to England. For their own safety, he did so. Then, on the first Sunday after they had left, he received a telegraph message just before the Sunday service. The congregation wanted to know what was in the message. What did the message say? Had his family arrived home safely? He announced to the congregation that he had just received word that his family had arrived home safely. Afterwards, it was learned that the home that they arrived safely to was their heavenly home. The boat that they were on had been torpedoed by the enemy and everyone on the boat had drowned. How could Eric Parker have perfect peace in such a situation? It was because his mind was steadfast on the Lord and he knew the peace which surpasses and transcends all understanding. And that peace comes only to those who truly know Jesus Christ as their Savior from sin and the Lord of their lives. When we have that blessed peace with God, that vertical peace, so to speak, then we also have peace with others. Isaiah and the remnant of believers in Judah, through faith in the coming Messiah, had peace not only with God, but also with one another. It was a, undoubtedly a great blessing to them because they, like we and like Christians in every era of time, were outnumbered. Judah and Israel had both turned from the teaching of the Lord. Verse 10 gives a tragic picture of their society. In God's timeless word, it also paints a picture of our society today. Verse 10, though grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. Even in the land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and regard not the majesty of the Lord. We look at our own society and see that there is no regard in our society for the majesty of the Lord even in a society that stamps on every coin, in God we trust. Most of our culture continues on an evil path, just as back in the days of Isaiah. But even when a culture is dead set against Christians, martyring them as that Christian whom Spurgeon described was martyred, there is yet a peace among believers. We are strengthened by the ties of faith that we have with one another. And we realize our need for each other as we see the hostility of the world and we realize that all of us are on that pilgrimage toward our heavenly home and we need one another. Ephesians chapter 2 is a, as a direct chapter as any in explaining that whatever our background or nationality. We truly are one body as believers in Christ. In that chapter, Paul describes how Jews and Gentiles had deep hostility for each other. But through that common bond of faith, Christ broke down the wall of hostility. 
no matter what background, nationality, or color, people from all different walks become one in Christ. Ephesians 2.14 declares, He himself is our peace, who has made the two one, speaking about Gentiles and Jews, people who had this great animosity for each other. The two became one. Because Christ has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. It is only when we have peace with God that we have that peace with other believers. We know what it is like to be forgiven. And so we find that it is easier to forgive others. We see the enormity of our own sin. We see God's righteous and proper wrath against sin. And we look and see that Jesus on the cross paid the full amount for our sin. He paid not just part, but the whole cost of our sin, bore the curse that we deserve. And as we see and experience God's grace and forgiveness in our lives, shouldn't it be much easier to forgive those who may sin against us? By God's sanctifying spirit within us, we can take to heart passages such as Colossians 3.13, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Or in the words of Ephesians 4.32, be kind and tender-hearted to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Another component of having peace with others, in addition to forgiving others as we have been forgiven by God, is the recognition that Christ is the head of the body and that every believer is a member in that body. As such, we see that it is good that we are not all the same. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, verse, 4, verse 12, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all's parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. And then he adds, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. It would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. It would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, he writes, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. And consequently, we don't look down on others who don't have the same gifts as we have. Instead, we rejoice that God has given each one of his people gifts to be used within the body and that together we work as members of the body of Christ, the true church. We work in harmony with one another, recognizing others' gifts and encouraging them in their gifts. 
And because we have peace with one another, and because we work together in harmony, we can stand strong against the opposition of the world, even as we hold out the love of Christ into a hostile culture. But not only do those who trust in the Lord have peace with God and peace with others, but also with circumstances, even when circumstances are excruciatingly hard. Isaiah's circumstances were certainly difficult. He was to be a faithful, godly prophet to a nation that wanted nothing at all to do with the Lord. Or if they did follow the Lord outwardly, they certainly would not follow him inwardly. Yet Isaiah writes about perfect peace even while facing great adversity. Unbelieving people have a hard time understanding how any Christian, whether in Isaiah's day or today, can have peace amid the hardest circumstances of life. They fail to grasp that the sovereign God does indeed work all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Yet as believers, I'm sure that we have all found the truth that William Cooper penned in his familiar hymn when he wrote that God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform, how he plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. But God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Cooper wrote that from personal experience before God graciously worked in his life. He had tried to commit suicide many times, each time failed, and perhaps brought Cooper to that realization that God did indeed have a plan and a purpose for his life and that he was not to try to end that life that God had given to him. In the course of our lives, especially as we reflect back and retrospect and look back at how God has led and guided us throughout the pilgrimage of our life, we see that God does indeed have a purpose and a plan for our lives, and we see that he works that plan out in truly remarkable providence, in mysterious and wonderful ways, even or especially during those hardest circumstances of life when we are in the deepest valleys. Perhaps you have heard about the Christian who was stranded on a remote island. He had prayed and prayed, but no one came to his rescue. One day he returned from the water's edge to a little hut that he had built on higher ground only to discover that the hut was in flames. His heart sank. His first reaction was to question the Lord. Why, Lord? Why would this happen? But he gave it over to the Lord and slept under the stars that night, trusting that the Lord must have some other provision for him since his hut had burned to the ground. In the morning, he was awakened by the sound of rescuers 
and they were calling from the ship, We saw the smoke from your fire yesterday, and we've come to rescue you. The Lord does not always turn our troubles to good overnight. You've discovered that, and I certainly have discovered that. Isaiah's life was filled with difficulty throughout, and it appears that he died a martyr's death. Yet because our God is sovereign, when by his grace and spirit's power, our trust and our faith are placed in him alone, we can indeed have the perfect peace that Isaiah experienced in all the troubles of his life. Through saving faith in Christ, we have peace with God. We have peace with others. We have peace even with the hardest circumstances of our lives. That is part of what makes it perfect. It is a perfect peace because it is a trifecta of God's grace which is multiplied to us. As Jude points out in verse 2 of his short letter, to those who are called, beloved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. In the NIV, it says, may it be yours in abundance. It may it be added to you. And it's a wonderful thing when God adds his mercy, his peace, and love to us. If you add four plus four, you've doubled what you have to eight. But if you multiply 4 times 4, you have 16. And then you multiply 16 by 16, and you have 256. And the scripture is saying, God multiplies. He doesn't just add to the blessings and to the strength and to the peace and to the grace and to the mercy that he gives to us. He multiplies it to us. By way of application... We see that only the Lord is able to give that perfect peace. Peace is elusive. Throughout the history of the world, people have looked for peace but have not found it. The reason why that is, is that only the Lord gives true peace. In verse 12, Isaiah writes, Lord, you establish peace for us. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. It is the Lord who establishes peace for his people. And he does so through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. Christ is the prince of peace. And the peace he gives has a dual aspect. The word shalom in the Hebrew for peace not only describes the removal of turmoil and the uncertainty uh, that is within, It also describes positive blessings. In other words, Christ not only removes our fears and uncertainties as we cast all of our cares and anxieties on him for he cares for us, but in their place he gives us a sure promise of complete fulfillment in him, a complete fulfillment described in many passages, including John 1.16 where John declares, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. Part of shalom, part of true biblical perfect peace is realizing that even when our world seems to be falling apart, our Lord 
provides his perfect peace which surpasses all understanding. But part of knowing that peace that surpasses understanding is a continual trust in him. It is a continual effort to walk in the light of his word. It is only then that we have true peace. That is why verse 4 tells us, trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord, is the rock eternal. The person who builds his house on the solid rock of Jesus Christ will have peace even in the greatest storms of life. But the person who builds his house upon the sinking sands of the philosophies of this fallen world will find no peace when the storms of life come their way. Building a house is similar to building a city. After all, every city is comprised primarily of houses and the businesses that support and supply the residents of the city. But there is a great difference between cities. Did you notice the two cities described in Isaiah 26? In verse 1, we read, In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and its ramparts. Verse 5 tells of a second city. He humbles those who dwell on high. He lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it down to the dust. Those verses remind us that in this world, spiritually, figuratively speaking, there are two cities. There is Jerusalem, the heavenly city. The Lord protects and provides for that city. As verse 1 points out, God makes salvation its walls and its ramparts. And there is Babylon, the city that is the epitome of evil. Babylon as a city represents this world in all of its hatred, malice, and persecution of believers. But in the words of verse 5, the Lord lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it to the dust. And that day is coming. That Revelation chapter 18 records as it describes the dramatic and complete fall of Babylon, the great city, in its evil wickedness and opposition to the Lord will be destroyed. There is no peace for those in Babylon, not in this world and certainly not in the world to come. No matter how hard unbelievers search for peace, they always come up empty. All the promises of peace that the ungodly pursue dissipate and leave a deep, empty void. As Isaiah 57, verse 20 and 21 puts it, but the wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. It is only in the Lord that we find that perfect peace. And to know that peace, our minds must remain steadfast upon him. As verse 3 says, you will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. What happened when Peter 
took his eyes off the Lord as he was walking on the water of that lake. He, he sank. So did the spirit of the man who was stranded on the island when he focused on the burning hut instead of the sovereign work of his heavenly father. But when he focused again on God's sovereignty, he slept the sleep of the righteous and found in the morning that God indeed was working all things for his good. Living in Florida for a number of years, my family and I became familiar with the hurricanes that will come up each coastline. They spawn tornadoes and violent thunderstorms, flooding rains, devastating winds. Yet, in the center of the hurricane, there in the eye of the storm, there is perfect calm, there is perfect peace. The same is true for us in the pilgrimage of life. When we have the Lord in the center of our life, when by the Holy Spirit's power we know the Father through saving faith in the Son, the rock of our salvation, we find peace in the knowledge that our Lord holds us in the palm of his hand with a strong and yet very compassionate hand in such a powerful way that no one and nothing can snatch us from his hand. His promise is not that he will remove all of our troubles, but that through them he will hold us securely and he will even sanctify us by the troubles that he allows to come into our lives. Even when he doesn't rescue us from hard circumstances immediately, as he did with that man whose hut burned, he promises to give an extra measure of his grace to endure the circumstances that we face with a peace that surpasses all understanding. You recall how he granted that peace to the Apostle Paul when he had that thorn in his flesh and he had prayed repeatedly that the Lord would remove the thorn and yet the thorn was not removed. The Lord gave this promise, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And the Lord gives the same promise to all whose minds are steadfast, trusting in Christ alone. As Jesus said in John 16, 33, after telling his disciples of how he would suffer and die, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And then, as our minds remain steadfast on the Lord, thankful for his promises, we are to obediently wait upon him with his name, and renown the desire of our hearts. As verse 8 puts it, yes, Lord, walking in the ways of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. My soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. Isaiah stands as an example of someone who did just that. He sought to walk in the ways of the Lord waiting upon God, even as he had to warn the nation of Judah about the impending judgment of God on them because of their sinfulness. 
Although his culture was corrupt to the core, Isaiah sought the honor and the glory of God's name and renown. The yearning of his heart and soul was that God would be glorified as he humbled the wicked and gave strength to the righteous. It was not an easy life for Isaiah, and yet it was a life in which he undoubtedly knew that perfect peace which the Holy Spirit inspired him to write about, a perfect peace with God, with others, with circumstances. Is the same true for you and for me? Is our mind steadfastly focused on the Lord Jesus Christ? Is the Messiah of the Old Testament the focus of your trust and faith and mine? Is he truly the rock eternal to you and to me? Are you and I building on the solid foundation of Christ? If so, whatever comes into your life in this week or in the future, you can be sure that God will grant you that perfect peace that surpasses understanding. You can be assured for the Lord who is the one who establishes peace for his people through the reconciling work of his son, Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, the only Savior from sin and the Lord of our lives. Amen. Our Father and our God, how thankful we are that in a world of sin, a world that is divided and filled with animosity and hatred because of sin, there is yet the perfect peace that only you can give through saving faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. How thankful we are that we have peace with you because of his shed blood as he nailed to the cross the record of our sin and bore the curse on the cross for us. How thankful we are for the uh, blessing of brothers and sisters in Christ that in the pilgrimage of life we can encourage one another and pray for one another and build one another up in the faith. And then, Lord, we are thankful that no matter what comes into our life, we can trust you to work all things for our spiritual good. You are so very gracious and merciful to us. We thank you, O oh Lord. We love you and pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our, prayer, our hymn of application is number 445, When Peace Like a River Attendeth My Way. All the stanzas we will be standing to sing hymn number 445. <laughs> 